When you say um every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now, lost my full attention. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and some people would say that it was mean of Cheryl to say that I sounded stupid, but it was actually the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. And the reason why was if she hadn't said it to me just that way, and she wouldn't have said it that way to other people on her team, but if she hadn't said it to me just that way, then I wouldn't have gone to see the speech coach. So one of the things I learned from this is that radical candor gets measured not at the speaker's mouth. It didn't get measured at Cheryl's mouth. It got measured at my ear. And she could tell that I wasn't hearing her. And that was why she went out as far as she did on the challenge directly dimension of radical candor. What's going on, my friends? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm bringing you a book, condensing that book down to its core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author onto the show to have a conversation about those golden nuggets. And every single week, I'm just here to save you a little bit of time in case you don't have time to read the book yourself. Thank you so much to everybody for your emails over the past week. I received a whole bunch of emails from people saying just how much you love the new format. It means a lot to me. So thank you so much for continuing to love it, listen to it, and get the good word out there. And thank you so much to everybody who's getting their ratings and their reviews in. I received a ton of emails from people who are rating and reviewing the show. If you haven't done that yet, what are you waiting for? Get your rating in, get your review in, either do it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, it doesn't matter. Just take a picture of your rating, of your review, send it to me through email, ryan.caligiuri at me.com, and I'm going to enter you into a draw for a prize every single quarter. This quarter, a new MacBook Air. So don't hesitate, take five minutes, write a rating and review, send it to me by email, and you're automatically entered into the draw every single quarter for a prize. So what do we got going on this week? This week we have the book Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity by Kim Scott. It was great having a conversation with Kim. She brings to the table a great deal of experience. And I didn't actually realize this, but she worked directly with Sheryl Sandberg. And for those of you who don't know who Sheryl Sandberg is, she's the current chief operating officer at, um, at Facebook. And she's also an author of two great books. And I've been trying to get Cheryl on the show. And one of these days, I'm going to get her on the show. And uh, I'm sure she'll provide a really great interview. Kim Scott, though, she provided a lot of great stories for us. And I can't wait for you to listen to it. So give it a listen. I hope you enjoy. And I'll catch you back here at the end of the interview. I'm very excited today to bring our guest, Kim Scott, to the table to talk about radical candor, be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. Kim, how you doing? I'm great. Great to be here. Uh, eager to cut the crap with you. <laughs> Fantastic. That's awesome. Well, before we break into it, for people who don't know who you are, maybe give us a quick introduction into who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am the author of Radical Candor. I spent a bunch of time designing uh, classes for managers to help them learn how to do their jobs. Uh, a lot of companies don't do this very well. Before that, I had an operating role at Google where I led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick sales and operations. And before that, I did three failed startups, so lots of lessons from the School of Hard Knocks. 
The book, again, we're covering is Radical Candor. And the one thing that I really took away from the book was that two things, candor and care. Those are the keys to being a kick-ass boss. In Golden Nugget number one, one of the first things that I took away from the book was that good leadership requires emotional presence. So to have a good relationship, you have to care about each person as a human being. And it's not just a business relationship. It's a personal relationship. And it's deeply personal. So can, yeah. you, so can you talk to us about emotional presence and why this is so important? I think that the, the first thing you need to do to begin to build good relationships with your employees, and you really do, I think that power and control can work really well in a baboon troop or a totalitarian regime, but hopefully that's not what you're, what you're <laughs> gunning for. You're looking for, for you know, to, to do really great creative work with people. And, and so the fundamental thing that you need to do is have a great relationship with each employee. And in order to have a good relationship, you need to be able to bring your whole self to work and to create an, an environment where the people around you can bring their whole selves to work. So sort of this one of this, there's two premises of radical candor. And the first is you've got to care personally. And that's more easily said than done, because I think very often a lot of people believe that that they are supposed to just be professional at work. And I'm not saying be unprofessional, but you've got to be more than professional. You've got you've got to be able, again, to bring your whole self to work, to have to bring your emotions to work, not in a negative kind of way, but as you say, to be emotionally present with your employees. I think one of the things I often suggest to people when they become leaders is just to eliminate the phrase, don't take it personally from your environment. <laughs> we spend more time at work than we do in any other part of our lives. And so, of course, we take it personally. And especially when we when we screw up and when our boss tells us we screw up. So the, the thing to do when you find somebody getting defensive about what you've said is not to tell them not to take it personally, but instead to have a basic human common decency reaction to the emotions, to react to those emotions with compassion, not with denial. Can you tell us the story about the Russian Diamond Company and how this ties into emotional presence? I think it's a very good story that I'd like you to share. Yeah. Early on in my career, uh, this was actually my first management role. I was about 22 and living in Russia. And my job was to hire a bunch of Russian diamond cutters. And I thought this was going to be really easy because the Russian diamond cutters were paid in rubles, which were worthless. And I was going to pay them a big salary in dollars, uh, which were worth something. And so I thought that's all management is, right? You pay people. Turned out I was dead wrong about that. They wouldn't <laughs> take the job. The diamond cutters didn't just want money. They wanted a picnic. So I took them on this picnic. I was going to do whatever it took. I was young and eager in my career. And, and so I took them on a picnic and we, ha we were drinking a bottle of vodka and tart apples and these giant hunks of meat. And, and we started talking and by the end of the picnic, I realized that the thing that the diamond cutters really wanted to know from me was that if everything went to hell in Russia, would I help them and their families get out? 
They didn't. They they started out talking about they wanted to learn English, but but by the end by the end I realized it was something much more core than that. And I realized that the thing that I could do that the state could not do for them was to give a damn about them and their families. And all of a sudden, management became much more interesting to me because people are interesting, and I like getting to know them. So that was sort of that's what set me off on my career as a manager so what do, you, what do you say to the executive the ceo the manager out there who's listening right now and maybe they're afraid to care about their employees because if they care too much about their employees if they get too um you know emotionally attached to them that it's going to be tough to perhaps um not reprimand them but it's going to be tough to have those hard conversations with them um and maybe that will lead into the next golden nugget here where we talk about the importance of challenging others and letting them yeah. challenge you because when you allow people to challenge you, it's an excellent way to strengthen relationships and cultivate collaboration. So maybe help us understand this idea of combining caring and this idea of challenging people. Yeah. So, so to answer your first question, I think what I say generally to, to leaders who are concerned that if they care too much, they won't be able to deliver the hard messages that's true. I mean, this is why you get paid the big bucks. It is harder <laughs> if you care. But you also you also won't be able to do those things well if you don't care. So often I think being a leader feels like a lonely one-way street where where you you care very deeply about all these people who work for you, but you cannot be too concerned about whether they like you in return. Because you're exactly right. If you are too concerned about that, you won't do the second thing you need to do as a leader, which is challenging them directly. Unfortunately, when it comes really to, to any relationship, but especially to the relationship between boss and employee, love is not all you need. You also need to be able to challenge them when they're wrong. You need some truth as well as love. And that's where the second dimension of radical canter comes in. You've got to be willing to challenge people directly. This is what I call the willingness to piss people off dimension of <laughs> radical cancer. Uh, Colin Powell said that leadership often means being willing to piss people off. And you do. That means you've got to be able to tell them when their work isn't nearly good enough. You've got to be able to tell people when the thing they've been working on for the last two years, the project they've been working on is being canceled. And you've got to be able to tell them clearly and quickly. And it's hard. Is extremely difficult, and it creates a lot of conflict too. So it's to me, it's a tough sell, especially for uh, executives out there who like to be liked. You know, they like to be the popular person. You're telling them to take a route that maybe isn't so popular. So what's the positives of this? Why would an executive out there listening right now start to challenge their employees? What's the benefits of that? So I think one of the things that makes it easier for people to challenge people because it is hard. We've been told since we learned to speak, I'm sure you had a parent who said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden it's your job to say it. And, and it's easy for me to say, you know, just challenge people, but it's hard to do. Uh, it's hard to undo training. So, so radical candor is very difficult and it's difficult because of training we've gotten since we were 18 years old and we were told be professional and that sort of moves you down on the care personally dimension. And it's told it's difficult because of things we've been told since we were 18 months old, since we first learned to speak. 
And a parent or somebody said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. So one of the things that makes it easier for leaders to understand why it's so important is to think about what happens when we fail on one dimension or another. So when you fail to challenge people directly, one, but, but you do show that you care personally, I call it ruinous empathy. Hmm. And I'll tell you a quick story about why ruinous empathy is so disastrous for leaders. Uh, I, I had just hired this guy, we'll call him Bob, and Bob, I liked Bob a lot. He was smart, he was funny, he was charming. He would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite playing one of those endless get-to-know-you games that everybody hates but nobody dares to say they hate. And Bob said, hey, I've got this great idea and it'll be really fast. So we were all down with that. And he said, let's just go around the table and really quickly tell each other what candy our parents used when potty training us. Weird but fast. And so we did it. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person. <laughs> at the right. So anyway, we, I found this charming and funny. One problem with Bob, however, Bob was doing terrible work, mm. absolutely atrocious work. <laughs> and I couldn't understand what was happening because he had this amazing background, this amazing resume. I, I learned later that the problem with Bob was that he was smoking pot in the bathroom uh, every day, which maybe explained all that candy. <laughs> anyway, I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob was Bob would hand in work to me and there was shame in his eyes. Mm. He knew it was terrible. And because I liked Bob and cared about him and wanted to protect his feelings, I would say stuff like, Bob, you're so awesome. You're so smart. This is a great start, but maybe you can make it a little bit better. And this went on for 10 months. And eventually the inevitable happened because the rest of the team was caring. Bob was having to redo his work. Uh, was was having to stay up late. It was taking them longer to f fix Bob's mistakes than just to have done the work themselves. Uh, I, I realized I was going to lose half my team if I didn't fire Bob. Wow. So I sat down to have a conversation with Bob, which I should have begun 10 months previously. And when I told him where things stood, he pushed the chair back from the table and he looked at me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? Hmm. And wow. is that, I mean, there's, I had no good answer to that question. And, and as it's going around in my head with sort of guilt with every revolution, the next thing he said to me was, why didn't anyone tell me? I hmm. thought you all cared about me. Wow. Wow. And I, yeah, I realized in that moment that I have failed to do my job. I have failed Bob in a bunch of different ways. I've failed to solicit criticism and praise from Bob. Maybe I was doing something that was driving him so crazy it was forcing him to toke up in the bathroom. <laughs> I don't know, and I never will, because I didn't ask Bob how things were going from his perspective. I didn't ask him to, to challenge me, to criticize me. I certainly didn't tell Bob when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And the kind of praise that I gave Bob was really just 
a head fake. It was not meaningful. Mm-hmm. And, and probably worst of all, I failed to create an environment in which everyone would tell Bob what was genuinely good about the work he did and when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all those different ways, he was now getting fired for it. Wow. And, and yeah, it was a terrible feeling, but it was too, at this point, even Bob agreed he should go. It was too late to save Bob. All I could do in that moment was make myself a really solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again. We think we're doing our employees a favor by being liked. You know, we want to be liked. We don't want to challenge them because we feel like if we challenge them, it's going to create conflict. Oh, they're going to hate us because I'm criticizing them. But in the case with you and Bob, Bob would have appreciated it. And maybe Bob would still be or would have been would have had a job still had you challenged him. It might have been the thing or the, the kick in the ass that he needed to straighten up and do better work. But because you didn't, it worked against him. So yeah. we, we, we fear challenging, and yet challenging sometimes is absolutely critical to us perhaps taking that next step. And I think about that story with you where you were told you needed a speech coach. I think that may, that story by itself as well probably had tremendous impact on you because somebody challenged you and said, hey, you can get better in this area. You need a speech coach. I don't know if you want to maybe dig into that story really briefly for us as well. Yeah, sure. I think So I think to, to, to tie up the loose ends on the Bob story – the, the, one of the things about the Bob story that is that is also worth mentioning is that part of the reason why I didn't tell Bob was that I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I wanted to be nice to him. But of course, it wasn't so nice after all. I fired him. Right? It would have been much nicer <laughs> to just tell him. And and then the other part of the reason why I didn't why I didn't talk to Bob was that I was afraid if I talked to Bob, I would hurt his feelings Mm -hmm. that he, and he was kind of an emotional guy. Like what if he started to cry in the office? (laughs) Then I was afraid the whole team would think I was a big bitch. (laughs) And so now I'm not worried about Bob. I'm worried about myself and my own reputation. Mm -hmm. So now I've done the worst of all worlds. Now I have neither cared nor challenged. I've been manipulatively insincere. Right. So so there were two mistakes I made with Bob. One was ruinous empathy, worrying so much about his feelings that I didn't tell him something he needed to hear. And the other part of the problem was that I was worried about my own reputation. So I didn't tell him. And that was more selfish. That was less uh, even worse. So so one of the things I tell leaders is like, think about your Bob story. Uh, and make sure you don't make that mistake. Or think about my Bob story <laughs> and, and make sure you don't make that mistake. Now, another thing I tell leaders is let's let's focus on positive target identification. So here's a story about a time when my boss criticized me in just the right way. So this was shortly after I had started working at Google and and I had to give a presentation to Google's founders and the CEO. And I walked into the room, and there is Sergey Brin in toe mm. shoes on an elliptical trainer, and <laughs> Eric Schmidt with his head, who was the CEO at the time, his his head is so deep in his computer, it's like he's been, it's like his brain has been plugged into it. And so I'm wondering, how in the world am I going to get these people's attention? And like any normal person in this situation, I felt a little bit nervous. Happily, the business that I was leading at the time was on fire. And 
And when I said how many new customers we had added, Eric's head pops up out of his computer and he says, what did you say? When I repeated the number, he said, this is remarkable. What do you need? Do you need more engineers? Do you need more marketing dollars? And so, you know, I'm feeling like the meeting went pretty well. <laughs> In fact, I'm feeling like a genius. Mm -hmm. And as I left the meeting, my boss was standing by the door and I'm expecting a high five or a pat on the back or something. And instead, she says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? Uh oh, and I think, oh boy, I've done something that totally screwed the whole situation up, but I don't know what it is. And my, my boss at the time was Cheryl Sandberg, and she started out by telling me the good things, not in a feedback sandwich BS kind of way, but, but actually teaching me something I didn't know before. But of course, all I really wanted to do was know what I had screwed up. And eventually she turned to me and she said, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And I kind of breathed a huge sigh of relief. If that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? I had a tiger by the tail, right? Who mm -hmm. cared? I said, um. And I kind of made this brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, yeah, I know. It's a verbal tick. No big deal, really. And then she looked at me again and she said, I know a really good speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And I kind of made that brush off gesture again with my hand. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all these new customers? And now I've got, you know, more, more engineers and more marketing dollars. And, and she stopped and she looked at me right in the eye and she said, I can see when you do that brush off gesture with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say, um, Every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now, he has my full attention. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and some people would say that it was mean of Cheryl to say that I sounded stupid, but it was actually the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. And the reason why was if she hadn't said it to me just that way, and she wouldn't have said it that way to other people on her team, but... If she hadn't said it to me just that way, then I wouldn't have gone to see the speech coach. So one of the things I learned from this is that radical candor gets measured not at the speaker's mouth. It didn't get measured at Cheryl's mouth. It got measured at my ear. And she could tell that I wasn't hearing her. And that was why she went out as far as she did on the challenge directly dimension of radical candor. And if she hadn't said it to me just that way, I never would have gone to see the speech coach. And I wouldn't have learned that indeed, Cheryl was not exaggerating. I really did say um every third word. And this was really, this was news to me because I had given a lot of presentations in the course of my career. I had raised $35 million for a startup giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And when Cheryl said it to me just that way, I realized that I wasn't. Hmm. When I went to see the speech coach, I realized that I wasn't. And this really got me to thinking. It was as though I had been walking through my entire career with my fly down and nobody <laughs> had had the courtesy to tell me. And why had nobody told me? And what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And, and I realized in the case of Cheryl, she really did care about each of her direct reports. 
she couldn't have cared personally about all 5,000 people who worked for her. Relationships don't scale. Even Cheryl can't have personal relationships with more than a handful of people. But she really did develop personal relationships with each of her direct reports. And she would do stuff like when I, when I moved from New York to California to take the job, and I was lonely because I didn't know that many people here, she invited me to join her book club, knowing that I love to read, love to write. And that was the kind of thing she did for everyone who worked for her. She made sure that that she understood enough about what was going on in our lives to be able to to help us out. But she never let her concern for our short-term feelings get in the way of something that she needed to tell us for our long-term development. So did you and take it, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish up. It, it was, that's why she was a great boss. Really simple, yet hard to do. So did you end up taking those speech classes? And uh, do you thank her for that today? I have thanked her many times for it. <laughs> and I, yes, I did. And, you know, I still say um occasionally, but it's not every third word. The dangerous thing about that story is I become hyper aware of saying um or of right. Of course. Of these <laughs> words. So it's interesting that it's a good lesson for both people who are receiving feedback and those who are giving it. When you're giving that exceptional guidance, you know, as the manager, as the CEO, you need to realize that it's important and your people need that guidance. And as somebody who's receiving that guidance, you need to realize that it's not, you shouldn't take it as a blow to your ego or um, take it as an insult um, or a slap in the face, but instead as something that is going to help develop you. You know, sometimes people look at it as a, as a setback, right? Like, oh, they told me I suck at something. It's a setback. No, it's a setup for you to get better at what it is you're doing. Exactly, exactly right. But of course, if you are a leader, you need to remember there's another mistake you can make. There are four, there are four boxes in the two by two. And there, there, you do, you will, and you do sometimes challenge someone directly and fail to show them that you care personally. And that's the mistake I call obnoxious aggression. And it's important to be aware of that because, again, radical candor gets measured not at your mouth but at the other person's ear. And you may have every good intent in the world, but if the other person doesn't feel it and hear it and know it, then you're going to engage their lizard brain when you give them when you give them feedback. So you need to make sure that you do show you care when you challenge the other person directly. And yeah, it's funny, for, for a long time I called, instead of calling it obnoxious aggression, I just called it the asshole dimension <laughs> of radical <laughs> And And I stopped doing that for a very important reason. When people see the radical candor framework, so there's, there's care personally, there's challenge directly, upper right-hand quadrant is radical candor, bottom right-hand quadrant is obnoxious aggression, upper left-hand quadrant is ruinous empathy, Bottom left-hand quadrant is manipulative insincerity. When they see this framework for the first time, they're tempted to start writing names in boxes. Hmm. And especially when I called it asshole, they were tempted to start writing. But that's the wrong thing to do because the, the truth of the matter is we all make these mistakes when we communicate with people all the time. And we make all of these mistakes. And so the way to use the radical candor framework is to guide conversations, not to judge yourself or other people. 
So it's so funny that you go, go into that because that's golden nugget number three. And it's that in order to provide exceptional guidance, we need to leverage the radical candor framework. So you already beat me to it. And the one thing that we, we take away from what we've talked about so far is that to give great guidance, we need to care personally about our people and we need to challenge them. And so to give meaningful feedback, we need to look towards the radical candor framework. So you've already set it up nicely for us. So help us understand what this framework is and exactly how somebody can use it. So the... The way to use the radical candor framework is just as when you're in the heat of a moment in a conversation and the other person, let's say the other person is getting really upset. Let's say maybe you see some some tears coming to the eyes. This is one of the most dreaded situations (laughs) that managers often find themselves in. And when that happens, it is so tempting to back off your challenge, to say, oh, it's no big deal, really. It'll all be, you know, but it is a big deal. This is something they need to address. And so remember that if you're backing off your challenge, you're headed towards ruinous empathy territory. You're you're headed towards the Bob kind of situation. And so what you want to do is not go the wrong way on the challenge directly dimension, but go the right way on the care personally dimension. So you want to react with to that emotion in a way that shows you care about the person, but doesn't sort of negate your message, mm-hmm. which is that whatever they've done wrong is a problem and they need to fix it. Uh, so that's, that's one way to use it. Another way to use it is let's say you've told somebody something and and you realize that the problem is that they have become incredibly defensive because you've said it in a way that has just crushed them and they can't hear it that way. Again, you don't want to back off your challenge, but you want to, you want to move the right direction on the, on the care personally. You want to, you want to show good intent uh, you, you want to say, look, the reason I'm telling you this is not to kick you in the shins or anything, but because I want to help you improve. Just, and it doesn't have to take a long time, but just to, to show your intention to be helpful. Now, another way to use, to use the framework is to realize when somebody is blowing you off, hmm. right? <laughs> and this is what happens more often than not. You think you're being so clear when you tell somebody that they say um too much. Like Cheryl said, you said um a lot in there. It was pretty clear, but I wasn't hearing it. And so you need to realize when the person just is not hearing you. And then you need to move, you need to say it in a way that maybe feels harsh to you or even mean, but you've got to say it in a, in a way that is really clear. One of the one of the most uh, I would say the origin story of radical candor is this one. I was I was walking down the street with a puppy that I had a golden retriever puppy who I adored, and because I loved this dog so much, I had never said a cross word to her, and as a result, she was utterly out of control. She was bounding all over the place, and she almost got hit by a cab. I pulled her out of the way just in the nick of time. And a stranger on the street looked at me and he said, I can see you really love that dog. That's all he had to do to move up on the 
care personally to mention. He didn't have to take me out to lunch or remember my birthday or any of that kind yeah. of stuff. See, he really loved that dog. And then he looks at me and he says, but you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach it to sit. <laughs> and it's, yeah, and he's got my full attention. That's right. And he points to the ground and he says in this very kind of harsh voice, sit. And the dog sat. I was astounded. I didn't even know the dog knew what that meant. <laughs> and I, I looked at this man in amazement, and he looked back at me, and he said, it's not mean, it's clear. Mm. And then he walked off, leaving me with words to live by. So if you can tell that the person you're giving feedback to is not hearing it, you have to, you have to work harder to be clear and to challenge even more directly. And often, if you're sort of a soft-hearted person or an empathetic person, that's going to feel mean. But it's not. It's not mean. It's clear. That's something I have to get used to. I am somebody who's, you know, if you look at my DISC profile, my DISC assessment, I'm a high I, right? Like I love yeah. I love to be liked by people and, uh, you know, I love getting into personal conversations. I'm very high when it comes to caring, but when it comes to challenging – I move over more to the left side. So I kind of hang over in that, that orange box, the ruinous empathy. And I can see how that's dangerous uh, to a lot of the people that I work with. And so for me, just I printed this up and I put it in my office as a reminder. Because honestly, some, you even mentioned in the book where sometimes, you know, it's, I would rather work with somebody who's more or less in that, uh, the asshole quadrant, which you call obnoxious aggression, than somebody who has manipulative insincerity. You know, because at least I know, you know, they're going to challenge me directly. They might not care about me, but they're going to challenge me. And I would appreciate that upfront, you know, frankness that they're bringing to the table as opposed to, you know, if they didn't challenge me, they didn't care, for example. Yeah, I think that's so great that you printed it and put it there. A number of companies that I've worked with to, to create a culture of radical candor have printed out the radical candor framework and put it up in rooms where people tend to have one-on-ones. When I, when I taught at Apple University, we printed a version. It was an earlier version of the framework. But managers would put it around their, in their office. And then when they were having conversations with, with employees, the employee would say, I'm not, I think you're being ruinously empathetic, would wow. point to the quadrant. And that was an invitation that just made it so much easier for the manager to just spit it out more clearly. Because it is really, it's very difficult to just say it sometimes. But, mm-hmm. but so getting an invitation to say it can be one of the most powerful things that, uh, that, that, can, that can happen. Right. For and, and just having a visual cue around the office can, can really help. I've worked with other leaders who've put who've just drawn it on a whiteboard in their oh, yeah. office and then put some post-its there and people after an interaction will just kind of put the post-it where they thought the interaction was <laughs> oh that's cool good idea and it, yeah it was really helpful for them like they sometimes they thought that they were being really radically candid and the other person <laughs> thought they were being obnoxiously aggression or sometimes obnoxiously aggressive but most often the dynamic is and and you see this play out with the post-its is that when you're giving feedback your fear is that the other person's going to think you're a jerk Mm. but when you're receiving feedback your fear is that the other person is not telling you the whole story is kind of pulling their punches and and so when you see this dynamic play out, it becomes much easier to, to move over 
as you need to on the challenge directly dimension. Hmm. The one thing I found it was really beneficial was just creating that self-awareness, becoming more aware of how I'm speaking, the kind of influence I have over certain people, um, the kind of influence people have on me and being able to more or less pinpoint where our communication, where we're trying to go by looking at that quadrant. It just creates awareness. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to go ahead and actually print that out and put, the, put it in their office just to create a better, self, uh, better sense of awareness in terms of where you think your communication sits um, on the quadrant. I think it's a great tool, fantastic tool. Yeah, there's, there, I, I, I thank you very much. I, I hope it helped. I spent an absurd amount of time <laughs> figuring out what the right words were for that. I spent, I think, three months no uh, figuring out what those, uh, you know, what those six phrases were. I think you nailed it. Looks good. Uh, I hope so. The other thing that you can use it for is it's really helpful for self-awareness, but perhaps just as importantly, it's really helpful for relational awareness. Mm. Because again, radical candor gets measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. So after you give some feedback, if you can say, how did that land for you? And, and you may be surprised. You think you nailed it and the other person still hasn't heard it. Or you think you nailed it and the other person feels crushed. And so it, or, or you think you nailed it and the other person just doesn't believe, especially in the case of praise, they'll often think you're being manipulatively insincere. And so just, and it just takes a second to ask, how'd that land for you? If the, if the other person will tell you, you'll learn a lot, not only about yourself, but about your relationship with others and not others in general, but a specific other. Like it may be the case that you have a team of five people and four of them find you radically candid, but one of them finds you ruinously empathetic. And so you have to say things even more harshly to that person in order to get through to them. For the last golden nugget here, lead without telling people what to do. Now, it's often yeah. believed that to be a good leader, we have to lead our people. And leading means perhaps telling them what to do. But you're saying that's not the case. So how do we become masters at leading without telling people what to do? Yes, I, I am a firm believer that if you want to get the very best work out of people, telling people what to do won't work. Because the truth is when, when you're collaborating with a group of people, you want to you want to achieve results together. You, you cannot know as much about each individual's work as they know. So what you want to do is you want to start by listening to them. You want to make sure that you understand what they think the right answer is over the area of work that they have more expertise on than you do just by definition. You may, may, may have a breadth of uh, perception, but they have a depth and you need to you need to push decisions into the facts. So you start by listening to what they want to do. Then you work with people to clarify. Johnny Ives said something really beautiful. He said, new ideas are fragile. And if they're not careful, leaders will just squish them. They'll just step all over them. So you want to make sure that not only are you listening to people's ideas, but you're, you're helping you're, to nurture those new ideas. You're not squishing new ideas. And once the idea is sufficiently baked, that it's ready for this, then you want to make sure that there's a debate. And it's not just a, a, a debate between you and your employee. It's a debate on the team. You want to pull uh, everyone along on your team. 
with uh, with these new ideas before you decide to do something with the new idea, before you decide whether or not to pursue it. So you're listening, you're clarifying, you're debating. Now it's time for a decision to be made. But remember, you are not the decider. Your job as the leader is to push decisions into the facts, to identify who's going to make the decision and by when. But the more decisions you grab for yourself, the less decision-making muscle you're building on the team and the less the less understanding of the facts uh, is brought to bear in these decisions. So now you've decided, but you're not done. You can't just jump to execution. You've got to persuade the rest of the team that hasn't been along for this exhausting listen, clarify, debate, decide uh, part of the cycle. You've, you've got to make sure that the rest of the team is is brought along, has context, knows about the decision, and is persuaded of the decision. And only then can you execute. And remember, part of your job as a leader is to make sure that everyone on your team and you has enough time to execute. So you can't, you've got to make sure that you don't skip a step in the listen, clarify, debate, decide, persuade routine. But you also need to make sure that that doesn't take too long, that people do have time to execute, that you're killing unnecessary meetings and making sure that there's no uh, or as little as possible grunt work. And having executed, now now comes the really hard part because now you're attached to whatever it is you've done. But now you've got to create the conditions that you and the whole team can learn whether or not it was a good decision or a bad decision, whether or not you executed well or didn't execute well. And then you got to start the whole cycle again. This is what I call the get stuff done wheel. And it it can feel very tempting to just jump in. I remember shortly after I joined Google, I, I was in a situation where it was very clear what the problem was and what the solution was. There was a, there were about a hundred people and it was like a fifth grade soccer team. Everybody was chasing the ball. <laughs> the team wasn't. So, so I decided I know what to do. I'm going to break this, this 100-person team down into five 20-person teams. I'm going to establish leaders, and leaders are going to have accountability. And after I did this, three out of the five managers who are working for me moved to other teams at Google. Oh. <laughs> Google's one of those places where if – yeah, if you don't like your manager, you just find another one. <laughs> and and I was horrified. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. I remember driving out to the coast and like watching the ocean. And then I went to talk to Cheryl, and she said, you know, you know, I, I agree with your decision that what you decided to do was right, but the way that you failed to bring the team along was a disaster. Mm. What uh, she said, she said, imagine that you're spinning a rope in a circle over your head. It doesn't seem like you're spinning it that, that hard or that fast to you because you're just sort of flicking your wrists a little bit. But imagine if you're at the end of that rope. You're hanging on for dear life. It's scary. You've got to bring people along if you're going to execute well. And they probably had a lot of ideas for how the teams could have been broken down that you couldn't possibly have known because you didn't take the time to listen. And it was really, it was really an education, and and how to make sure that you do things efficiently, but skipping steps is not efficient. Hmm. Wow, 
the insights, the stories, the things that you, you know, we're going to be thinking about and pondering about, things we're going to be putting into action. There's a lot of takeaways from this episode. So I highly recommend people go out and pick up the book, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity by Kim Scott. Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I really, I loved it. I hope you loved the book and I'm happy to help you execute on ideas in the book. So oh, if you want send, send an email, go to RadicalCandor.com. We've got lots of different ways to contact us and, uh, and additional resources you can use to, to begin to make the ideas in the book realities in your organizations. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Kim. I appreciate it. Thank you. Loved it. All right, my friends, there we have it. That's Radical Candor. Be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity by Kim Scott. Really enjoyed talking to Kim. She was a great interview and uh, provided a lot of really great experiences, great stories. And I'm just glad I had the opportunity to bring all that to you. If you enjoyed the show today, then please get online, rate and review the show. It doesn't matter if you're listening on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, whatever it is you're listening through, rate and review the show. Send me a screen capture so that I know you did it, and I'm going to enter you into a draw this quarter and every other quarter moving forward for a prize. This quarter's prize, a MacBook Air. So don't hesitate. Get your rating. Get your review, and it'd mean a lot to me. So thank you so much in advance for doing that. Every single episode, as you know, I always end off with a bumper um, that's inspirational in nature. and I do that on purpose. You know, One of the reasons I do that is because I want you to come here to learn. I want you to come here to save some time, and I want you to leave with lessons and inspiration. I truly believe that inspiration works. You need to be inspired. For people who say that inspiration, motivation is garbage, they're full of shit. I'm sorry, you're full of shit. It does work. You need to to be inspired every single day to get up and get out of bed, to do what you need to do, to drive forward, to push forward, to grow, to build. And for me, always ending off on an inspirational note is so important. So last week's inspiration, I had Steve Harvey giving his um, di- giving a dialogue, giving a speech after one of his shows. And that right there was one of the most important ones to me. And I actually sat back and I listened to it multiple times over. And I don't know if many of you listened to it multiple times over, but I'm going to include it again this week because it was so important. And the more I listened to it, the more it resonated and the more I knew how important it was. So I'm going to replay that one that I had last week on the bumper this week just because I know how important it is. So give it a listen and really internalize his dialogue because, man, it was truly inspirational. And for me, that lasted throughout my entire week and it still sticks with me today. So I hope it does the same for you as well. All right, my friends, that is a wrap. So thank you so much for joining me again this week on Cut the Crap Podcast. I will catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book brand new golden nuggets, a new interview with an author. And hey, every single week, I'm just here to save you a little bit of time. Come to learn something, save some time, and of course, leave inspired. Enjoy the Steve Harvey speech at the very end. Take it easy. Have a great week. I love you guys. share something with you.
I'm going to tell you something that every successful person has to do, including you. Believe it or not, every successful person in this world has jumped. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. You eventually, you are going to have to jump. You cannot just exist in this life. You have got to try to live. If you are waking up thinking that there's got to be more to your life than it is, man, believe that it is. Believe in your heart of hearts that it is. But to get to that life, you're going to have to jump. Now, I'll tell you why I call it jumping. See, God, when he created all of us, gave every last one of us a gift at birth. He never created a soul without endowing them with a gift. You just got to quit looking at gifts as running, jumping, singing, and dance. It's more than that. It's if you know how to network, if you can connect dots, if you draw, if you teach. Some of y'all fry chicken better than anybody else. Bake pie. Some of you cut hair, color hair. Some people do grass. I got a partner, man, with Never wanted to go out with us because we stayed out too late. Come on, man, go out with now. I got to get up early, mom. Cutting Miss Johnson grass. We kept laughing at this dude. Cutting grass. How much they pay you? He got a landscaping company in Cleveland worth $4 million. Because all he do is cut grass. But he was gifted at it. I got a partner on a detail shop. Make $800,000 a year. Detailing cars. He got six mobile trucks running around. $800,000 a year. All he do is detail cars. That's his gift. That's what he loved to do. You've got to identify that gift. Now listen to me. When you see people in life, when you're standing on the cliff of life, and you see people soaring by, when you see people soaring, going to exotic places, you hear about them doing wonderful things, maybe you look up the street and your neighbor just gets a car every year, every two years, you know, how is he doing that? Have you ever thought Maybe this person right here has identified their gift and is living in their gift. Because your Bible says, this your Bible, says your gift will make room for you. Your gift, not your education. You go get an education, that's nice. But if you don't use your gift, that education only gonna take you so far. I know a lot of people got degrees, man. They ain't even using it. It's your gift. But the only way for you to soar is you got to jump. You got to take that gift that's packed away on your back. You got to jump off that cliff and pull that cord. That gift opens up and provides the soar. If you don't ever use it, you're going to just go to work. And if you're getting up going to work on a job every day that you hate going to, that ain't living, man. You just existed. At one point in time, you ought to see what living's like. But the only way to see what living like, you gotta jump. And here the problem. Let me just be real with you. When you first jump, let me tell you something. Your parachute will not open right away. I, I'm sorry. I, I wish I could tell you it did, but it don't. When you jump, it's not going to open right away. You're gonna hit them rocks. You're going to get some skin tore off on them cliffs. You're going to get all your clothes tore off. You're going to get some cuts on you. You're going to be bleeding pretty bad. But eventually, eventually, 
the parachute has to open. That is a promise of God. That ain't a theory, that's a promise. His promises is true, because listen to me, you cannot name one single thing God has not gotten you through. Name it. And if he ain't got you through it, he currently pulling you through it right now. And the living proof of it is you sitting in here. If he hadn't got you through it, you wouldn't even be here. So if he ain't never not got you through it, why would he not let your parachute open? He, it has to open, man. But it, it, you gotta jump, though. Now, here's another thing. You can play it safe and deal without the cuts and the tags. And you can stand on that cliff of life forever safe. But if you don't jump, I got another promise I can make you. Your parachute will never open. You'll never know. You never know what God really has. See, your God has a wonderful life. Once again, I'm going to refer to your Bible. Now, you go down there, you memorize these scriptures, you're going to apply them to yourself. Your Bible says that he comes to give you life and give you life more abundantly. If I were you, I would jump. Because that's the only way to get to that abundant life. You got to jump, man. You got to take a chance. Now, when I get through talking, there are those of you who discuss this in the car. Well, I got bills, and I got I got bills. I, whether you stay on the cliff or you jump, you're going to have bills. Well, if I quit my job, I'm going to ruin my credit. If you got a job, you're living check to check. Even if you got A1 credit, you can't buy nothing else no damn way. At one point in time, man, do yourself a favor. Go, go see what God really do. God hold you up, man. He ain't gonna let you fall. He ain't bring you this far let you fall. Do yourself a favor, man. Before you leave this world, before you die, jump. Just jump one time. Just jump. Thank you very much.